making sense of EU. Welcome to Making Sense of EU, a podcast where scientific research sheds light on the pressing issues of EU affairs. Making Sense of EU is brought to you by the Institut de Tutorben of the Université Libre de Bruxelles. This series on the challenges of liberal democracy in the EU is a product of the Horizon Europe research project Red Spinel and it's co-funded by the European Union. My name is Maria Isabel Solevila and I am your host. In our opening episode of this season of Making Sense of EU, we discussed with Professor Ramona Coman, principal investigator of the project Red Spinel, the ambitions of the consortium that brings together 11 partner organizations from eight European countries. Today, we want to dig deeper into the core concept of the census, and we'll try to make sense of why it is at the center of the Horizon Europe Research Project, coordinated at the Institut d'Etudes Européennes. For this, I'm thrilled to welcome Nathalie Brac, who is Associate Professor of Political Science at the Université Libre de Bruxelles and Visiting Professor at the College of Europe in Bruges. Her research interests include EU institutions, EU decision-making process, Euroscepticism, sovereignty, Brexit, political representation, and comparative politics. Joining us again is Ramona Coman, who leads Red Spinel and is Professor of Political Science at the ULB and former President and Director of the Institut de Tutes Européennes. Welcome to Making Sense of EU to both. You have both been working on the conceptualization of the core concept of the project Red Spinel, the census. Could you explain a bit the process to our non-academic and non-scientific audiences? How do you go about defining and refining the overarching concept of the project? I know this is a circular process. You go, you check with your peers, you go again. But tell us about the experience. Political science and social science in general is an attempt to make sense of political and social situations and phenomena that we perceive as more or less complex. And to understand what happens in the real world, we need theory and we need concepts. Now, for non, our non-scientific audience, theories provide a set of explanation about why and how things happen. And concepts are abstract categories which define a phenomenon, a process or a situation. We belong to a discipline, Natalia and I, political science and EU studies, which is characterized by theoretical and pluralism and diversity. And most of the time, we use existing theories and concepts which have been coined since the institutionalization of political science in Western Europe and also in the United States. But there are also situations and contexts when existing theories no longer explain the present, when the theory needs to be revised, when conceptual innovation is required. And also, I think in political science, improving theory is one of the aims of the discipline. We don't intend to propose a theory of the census. We want to define this concept. It's just a concept. It's just a definition of this concept. And how to define a concept? This was the question that you asked at the very, very beginning. I can say that this is a very complex exercise. When we start the academic career, usually what we do is that we have research questions and then we, have, we apply theories. We apply concepts which have been defined by others. This is very comfortable when we start an academic career. Now I'm a bit more advanced in my career and this is a challenge to define a concept. It is a challenge indeed for several reasons. The first challenge is that we don't really have a manual 
manual. You know, I teach methodology in political science, but there is no book or a, uh, an article on how, so to kind of an adventure. how to define it. It is an, an intellectual adventure. Indeed, there are some rules, of course, there are some rules. And also theoretical innovation means that your concept has to travel. It has to be used by others. It has to be appealing to the community of scholars and it has to be defined with some rigor and according to some methodological requirements. And this is what we did with Natalie. It was to see how other scholars have defined concepts and to try to, you know, have our toolbox in this adventure, which is to define the census. People have in mind an idea of what a scientist is, kind of a solitary person in their own cave, sort of digging in concepts and trying to figure things out. But I've had the privilege to see it's a very collective, also a very social process at the same time. So perhaps you can, uh, Nathalie Vrac, uh, tell us a little bit more about how that works. Yeah, it's both of them, I would say. So I was very fortunate that we are working as a team with Ramona, so we can go back and forth between the two of us. And we could also cover a lot of literature because, as Ramona said, we don't have like a big manual, but there are authors covering other concepts and also the rules of how to build the concept. So that helped us to build the concept of the census. And then we could cover that literature. And of course, it's not a solitary process because you have to agree with each other about, okay, what does it mean? Is it precise enough? And then you have to go outside. I would love to be able to just peek in when you're disagreeing and you're trying to figure out how to... <laughs> no, it's okay. We didn't have a lot of disagreements, but it's more about constructive feedback that you say, okay, I am not sure that I agree with that part or, you know, I would phrase it differently or perhaps, uh, for instance, now we still have some issues with, with the paper and, and uh, some specific dimension of the concept where we got a lot of feedback over the last few months and we, we know that we have to rework on it. So it's a, as you said at the very beginning, it's an interactive process. So you have to go back and forth between the theory and then the empirics because we want to build an empirical concept. And then between Ramona and I about do we agree on what we are saying and also on the implications. You have to have consensus between the two of you in a way. <laughs> Yes, and one thing that I wanted to add to that is that concepts, if you have a look at, for example, populism or democracy, concepts are contested, all the time are contested. So it is the first reaction of the academic community. Of course, we will have, and I suppose there will be some colleagues who will follow this uh, reasoning and questioning on the census, but most of the time we improve concepts just because they have been criticized by other scholars and, and there is no consensus exactly. on the concept I, I, definition. I was going to ask you about that, Natalie as you were explaining, a lot of the times the criticism you receive or the feedback you receive is contrary to what you have developed. What happens when you don't agree with those who come in and bring you new ideas? How do you go about, what do you take in? What do you leave out? How do you negotiate this? In political science and EU studies, you have a lot of approaches and theoretical backgrounds. So sometimes you get comments from people coming from other fields than, than you do. And sometimes it's very useful because it sheds light on aspects that you didn't think about. And then you try to take that into account. But sometimes, indeed, you disagree with one of the comments. And then you think about it. I'm not, and Ramona is certainly not a person that you say out front, I don't want to discover that part of the literature or that discussion. 
But sometimes you say, okay, I don't agree with that conceptualization or that feedback. And it depends if it's at a conference, for instance, you politely thank the person. But if it's a reviewer for a publication, then you have to explain why you disagree with this. And it has to be you know, reasons, you have to explain why you don't want to go and, that way. And at some point you have to set limits to your own yes. research. You cannot explore everything. And I think what is also important is to have some criteria and some rules in our process of concept definition. This helps also to have a dialogue with scholars in the sense that, for example, for the census, as I was saying before, we had some guidance and we read, for example, the work of Peter Mayer or Giovanni Sartori, who wrote on theories of democracy. And we tried to follow a bit um, the ways in which other scholars have defined concepts, looking at populism, Euroscepticism. Natalie worked a lot on Euroscepticism and other concepts. And in this case, precisely for the census, we try to define it following three main steps. The first one was to see what we want to describe, what is the definition of this, what is the reality that this concept of the census describes, so to identify the main components of the concept. This was the first step. And in our case, it was to name the actors of the census, the nature of the conflict and the goals of the conflict. And then also the other step in the, this process of conceptual definition was negative identification. In other words, looking at existing concept to check whether with... So what it isn't. Exactly, exactly. What the census is not. And this was also a way for us to, you know, have some uh, methodological rules. And our definition of the census, because I, we will discuss also about that, has three main dimensions, basically. One is what is the census? And we say the census is a conflict which takes place in different arenas, social, political, parliamentary, executive, legislative, and so on. So the census is a conflict. The census is also a conflict which is driven by political, social, legal, actors, which takes place in different institutional and non-institutional arenas, so this is about the place. Mm -hmm. And then third dimension of the definition is the goals, so a conflict about seeking to maintain liberal democracy, to replace liberal democracy, or to restructure liberal democracy. So we have a definition covering what is the census or conflict, where is the conflict expressed, and then what are the goals of the conflict, if I can summarize this. What can we say are the challenges liberal democracy is facing today? And how is the census useful for studying this? There are many, many concerns. Some of them are related to the foundations of the polity, the values, the institutions, the functioning of the institutions. Others are related to the nature of the policies and the future that we want to have all together. And this is about migration. This is about climate change. So the tension, for example, between globalization and also identity politics. So there are many, many challenges. And I think that the biggest one is the ability of institutions at the domestic, but also at the European supranational level, the ability of institutions to respond to those concerns in a context of increased polarization and disagreement about how to deal with that. So this is for me the biggest challenge, I would say. And just to conclude on that, is the examples that I mentioned, they are all related, if you want, to the definition of liberal democracy. I started with examples to go to the definition. The definition of liberal democracy is precisely that. Liberal democracy is characterized by pluralism, free and fair elections, rule of law, 
separation of power, protection of civil liberties, minority rights. So all the challenges that I've mentioned are in a way or another related to the core pillars of liberal democracy. So this is what we want to study. Yeah. And for us, the core of our idea about the census also is what is new that wasn't there before and why we're talking about the crisis of liberal democracy or conflicts about liberal democracy. And for us, there were a few elements that changed now in the last decade or so. And the main one was the mainstreaming of the conflict and the critique of liberal democracy. So for a long time, the rules of the game were taken for granted or even promoted liberal democracy in the 90s. And now these have become polarized and contested. And it's not only by small fringe actors at the periphery of the political system. It's also by people in government that are trying to restructure or replace liberal democracy. But it's also beyond politics, in the legal sphere, in the social sphere, with social movements or think tanks or of that kind of stuff. And at the middle, so the mainstream parties there, there is a sort of a crisis of conviction where people are saying, well, the liberal democracy has become an empty shell and then we have to replace it or restructure it. And that all together, that forms this specific context and phenomenon that we are trying to understand and to understand the implications of that conflict over liberal democracy. So contestation and autocratization, all these other concepts are not enough anymore. No. So we needed a new concept in our view. We, of course, as Ramona said, negative identification is a key part of our research when we define a new concept. So that's to say, do we need a new concept? And two key concepts that we examine are opposition and contestation because they are closely related. It's also a form of dissent, but we see them as strategies that actors use. So that's very useful in our research to have all this work on those concepts of opposition it's a central part of democracy. You don't have a democracy without opposition. Otherwise, it's tyranny. <laughs> it's autocracy without opposition. So, of course, they're very useful to us. But we came to the conclusion after reviewing the definitions on contestation and opposition that this literature, they focus on oppositional actors only or mostly. So on people in opposition, whether at the social level or the political level. And it's not enough to understand what's going on because the main issue now, especially, for instance, in Central and Eastern Europe, is that that's people in government that are trying to replace or restructure liberal democracy and contesting liberal democracy. So with using a concept such as contestation or opposition, you don't grasp the full picture and also the interactions that are taking place between people that are trying to maintain liberal democracy, defend it or restructure it or replacing it. Professor Coman, you have given some examples already, but... It almost seems when you look at the media that there's a playbook already written and you see the same strategies and the same deployment of these dissensus over and over again. Have you noticed during this year of studying dissensus, almost a year now, a pattern, a way of these dissensus manifesting? Concrete examples to help us understand better how it happens, how it gets implemented? Dissensus can take different forms and can be expressed in different arenas. And I will give maybe some examples. Look at the United States and the election of Donald Trump to the White House was the most obvious manifestation of the crisis of democracy. And also it was the oldest and most powerful democracy which elected the presidents who had not hesitated to express his disdain of four constitutional principles. We saw that in the United States, but also then, which is even more interesting, 
emerging, we see it today in Central and Eastern Europe, big question for political science because Central and Eastern Europe, all the, the countries in this part of the region imported or reformed political regimes after the collapse of communism. And now we see political parties winning elections precisely against liberal democracy. So again, concrete forms of manifestation and this pattern we saw in Poland and in Hungary, the Hungarian Fidesz Party and also the Law and Justice Political Party in Poland. Once they were in government and in power, they then started to dismantle. This is what I, the word that I use, the pillars, the core pillars of liberal democracy. There is another form of dissensus that we try to investigate with Natalie. It's not only dissensus at the EU level, there is also a form of dissensus concerning the EU because there is this critique in saying that the EU is expressing or is developing a form of undemocratic liberalism and also limiting the space of dissensus, of expression of disagreements. So there is also this side of the, of the phenomenon which is very, very interesting for us. It's not only Central and Eastern Europe and what happens there, there are different forms of dissensus and I think this is what is amazing. It is a very complex puzzle, very, very complex puzzle, but we also wanted to address this facet of this phenomenon, so what we call undemocratic liberalism, and not only us, which is this centralization of power, decision taken behind closed doors by non-elected actors, which has become a trend in the functioning of EU institutions. Which could be fueling the other dissensus exactly, on the other exactly. side of the coin. So dissensus for us is the convergence of two phenomena. is rise of populism and dismantling liberal democracy, but also this rise of undemocratic liberalism in the context of crisis. This is maybe a more political question than an academic question, but what do you think is at stake if this trend of dissensus continues to grow in the way that you have identified? We don't want to see dissensus as something, you know, purely negative or something that should be only alarming. So for us, it very much depends on what are the goals of the actors involved, what's the context and what's the power of those actors. And there can be also positive sides to dissensus. So, for instance, opposition and contestation are needed in a democracy. And as Ramona was saying, if you have the rise of undemocratic liberalism and you shut down any possibility of opposition, that's also not good for democracy. So if you have dissensus, you have more debates. And perhaps by questioning the rules of the game, you can reinvent a better democracy that's addressed the concerns of those people that are now dissatisfied with liberal democracy. So that could lead to reforming liberal democracy in a more democratic way and rebalance this undemocratic liberalism in the EU and offer an alternative to the populist claims that are saying we need to replace liberal democracy. But of course, there are also risks. It's not all positive. So if dissensus is growing very extreme, as we see in some specific case. And those actors willing to replace liberal democracy come to power, then it, it's a serious threat to liberal democracy. And to fundamental rights. Even. Yes, and the fundamental rights, especially in a context where, for instance, specific institutions are contested and weakened by several reforms and where you don't have these protections of those rights anymore. And then it's a very dangerous situation, yeah. The upcoming European elections and also national elections around Europe, you mentioned that we're going to be kind of a laboratory to study dissensus. But how do you think this context will play out in the upcoming months with all these elections coming up? 
We have new political parties positioning or claiming against liberal democracy, but in a specific context, and this context should be taken into account, these three decades of transition, three decades of painful political, social and economic transition, and what we see in the region is a competition between different narratives pointing out the failures of democratization, the failures of European integration, pointing out, you know, and targeting political liberalism, also economic liberalism and cultural liberalism. Do you see a similar situation in Western Europe? Yes, it's a bit different, of course, but there you also have, it's, it mostly comes from white right-wing uh, populist parties that are gaining grounds everywhere. But to come back to your question on the EU elections, perhaps I'm um, too optimistic, but research show that their direct influence is very limited in the European Parliament. So I'm conducting now an analysis about the current parliament where we see that despite that it's very fragmented, that the main political parties have lost their majority together, the direct impact of right-wing populists on the legislation is very limited because the EU and the European Parliament is still very much managed by a consensus at the centre. With Natalie, we are also looking at the Council and the impact because in the Parliament, indeed, maybe they don't have the power to shape EU's policies, but look at what happens in the Council and there... They are the ones who have the exactly. last word. So they have an important, not the last one, but in, with the parliament, but still very, very powerful. Well, thank you very much, professors Nathalie Braque and Ramona Coman, for discussing with us today and helping us make sense of the census. I really look forward to continuing the, looking at the research and how the other scholars are going to apply the census. And we will make sure that you, our audience, gets a first look at everything through Making Sense of EU. Thank you and see you back soon. Thank you. Thank you. Making sense of EU.